Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Let's talk about what's going to happen next with our good friend, Dr. Christian Luprecht, professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the McDonald Laurier Institute and author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford Press. So how did it come to where we are now, which is a hot war and utter brutality with war and crime charges pending against Russian military commanders in Ukraine after Putin for months declared he had no intention of invading. What's the grand plan? What's the strategy? We've talked to guests about this already today. We've uh, just spoke with Andrei Mofchan, the founder of the investment company Mofchan Group in Moscow and an expert at the Carnegie Moscow Center about a piece that he wrote in the Moscow Times in which he declares Putin is uh, an international terrorist unlike any we've seen before. Takes millions upon millions of hostages and then begins to kill them. Dr. Christian Leprecht is with us. Christian, thank you very much. What do you make of Vladimir Putin? What is he to you? We just spoke to the man who's made his life in Moscow. He's a businessman, but he's very, very outspoken and calls Putin a terrorist. What do you say? My grandfather always said to me and warned me sternly never to trust the Russians. And I think by that he meant the Russian regime. And I think this is partially what we're seeing here, that this is a, a, a great country, a great civilization, but that uh, repeatedly has been led by regimes that uh, unfortunately do not lead the country in the best national interest or the best interest of its people, but rather the interests of its elites and of its rulers. Um, I think it is telling that the small Russian elite of about the 145 richest Russians own as much as the other 145 million Russians together. This is, I think, this people who are stealing this country blind, who are robbing their own people and robbing their own country blind to their sole own benefit. And so we need to understand here what this is teaching us is that human rights and democracy are not some sort of privilege that um, we need to make sure that we defend human rights and democracy and that we need to understand that there are people who are simply so obsessed with themselves and their own visions. Um, and I think one of the challenges in this country is that I think we've, we are very naive about the world uh, because we border a relatively benign hegemon and we have not been exposed to the many challenges that so many other people uh, in the world face. And I think many immigrant communities and immigrants to this country uh, can tell harrowing tales about their own experience. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I receive emails on a regular basis, regular basis, from Canadians who say either their parents or they themselves lived in communist countries. Some went through the experience of having 
the Russian system or the Soviet system rammed down their throats at the end of a tank barrel, Czechoslovakia, uh, Hungary, in some cases people who have been around for a long time, but remember East Germany, and, and they, they, they caution against becoming too complacent, which is what we have become. We have become complacent. But this question for you then, and by the way, I was really surprised, shocked, to find out that only 100,000 families in Russia, this is according to my uh, last guest, only 100,000 families in Russia have amassed wealth of $1 million. 100,000 families out of, as you say, what, 145 million people, 100,000 have a million dollars. So what's the grand strategy here? What do you believe Putin is doing? Is this just an incremental, I shouldn't say just, is this an incremental uh, adventure in his head that he's engaging on to just prove to himself that he can, bit by bit, over time, reassemble, if not all, then a significant part of the Soviet Union. I think there is a legacy issue here. He's desperate to leave a legacy for himself. And we saw this in this curious speech two weeks ago on the Monday night on Russian television, where he essentially said that Stalin, Lenin made mistakes that so granting the status of a republic of one of the 27 republics to ukraine was a mistake and so that basically he him restoring that status of a demilitarized republic which is of course one of his four objectives that he has laid out for himself here uh, is one of his immediate goals and i think thereby he's trying to he's he sees himself i think as someone who history will ultimately prove right. He also, I think, sees this great injustice somehow having been done to Russia, that he firmly believes that Russia is one of the world's great powers. And so he believes the conspiracy that the United States, like so many authoritarian regimes do, this conspiracy that somehow the United States is out to get them and to keep them down and keep them low. And so this you also get this from the Iranians, they, that the regime thinks of itself as this great civilization that has been around for thousands of years. They think about of the Americans as sort of this upstart country that showed up a couple of hundred years ago, and all of a sudden they think that they can sort of rule the world, not understanding that the American model might not be perfect, but it's looking a lot more attractive than what Iran or Venezuela or North Korea or Russia or in many ways China has on offer. So uh, I think this is sort of part of the part of the debate here that uh, um, and, and Russia has, I think we get a sense here that Putin is trying to ascribe himself in the history of, 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 of Catherine the Great and, and, and great Russian leaders and uh, uh, at the same time, I think a certain sense of personal paranoia here, the democratic contagion from Ukraine, I think that he did not anticipate Ukraine to become as economically prosperous, relatively as democratically stable, relatively um, as it has. And so this real fear of democratic contagion in Russia that could not only cost him his job, but ultimately could cost him his neck. Okay. So before I take a break, when I say to you, no-fly zone, what do you say? That we have a bit of a no-fly zone effectively because we've been helping the Ukrainian Air Force to keep somewhat functioning. Um, the uh, Russians do not control the skies over Ukraine yet. 
Uh, we've been providing, uh, as has been widely reported, literally thousands of surface-to-air missiles, Stinger missiles, as well as ammunition for other uh, surface-to-air technology that the Ukrainians have. So yes, it's not a no-fly zone per se, but if you look at the stats of over 30 rotary wing, over 30 fixed wing aircraft having been brought down, I would be increasingly nervous if I was a Russian pilot over Ukraine, because this is clearly a dangerous place to be. And the signal the West has been sending is it's getting increasingly dangerous. But of course, that means the West has to continue to stand by Ukraine. And we know that Stinger missiles and surface-to-air capabilities were a big turning point in the 1980s Afghanistan insurgency. And so I think uh, we need to persist here in supporting um, uh, the Ukrainians uh, as brothers in arms in this fight. I just wanted to correct myself because I'd refer to as brothers in arms. And of course, we see just as heroic, if not more heroic actions, but of course, the many women, the sisters in arms uh, that are fighting in Ukraine. And this is very much a gender equal fight. And so I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge all those who are um, putting their lives on the line for, to, for, for democracy and for freedom here. Yeah, I, I just saw actually last night a young Ukrainian couple. They just gotten married a couple of days ago and uh, the husband was off, um, had gone I don't know if he had a hunting rifle or where they had something a little more sophisticated, but he was off fighting and his bride of just a few days was speaking into the cameras, explaining what they had done. And she had every intent to also go out and fight, stand up in the streets against the Russian army, which is, which is really um, just so inspiring to see. And uh, I, I mentioned earlier today that I was heartsick. I had two guests were scheduled to be on the air with me from Kiev today. And at four o'clock in the morning here, which is seven hours behind them, they were either on the phone, actually on the phone and uh, texting me, apologizing for not being able to come on the air. They had to get away from where they were, just hopefully to be able to save their own lives. But they felt it was necessary to apologize for having missed the, uh, the interview, which was just, you know, it's amazing. And, and I just felt heartsick for them, as I do for everyone who's caught in that maelstrom in Ukraine. So let's talk about uh, Canada's participation in this situation. And what do you think Canada's role is? What can it be? And what's your sense of the sanctions that have been imposed? So Canada, of course, has a long-standing interest in the territorial integrity, the economic prosperity, the political stability, and the social harmony of Europe. And Canada observed in the first half of the 21st, 20th century the, the, the consequences um, of uh, an instable war, a Europe, uh, a Europe that is ruled by tyrants. And so Canada knows that with Europe as its second most important strategic relationship, that um, the fight in Ukraine is very much a fight about Canadian security, Canadian prosperity, and Canadian democracy, and that should not be lost on Canadians. We've seen the government step up here and I think draft behind our allies in terms of sanctions, in terms of commitments, but I think in terms of the overall, yes, we've been very committed to the training mission in Ukraine, but I'm not sure that, for instance, our Canadian armed forces are really prepared for this fight. And I'm waiting for the prime minister to make the same U-turn that Germany did on its defense policy. 
to be able to effectively increase by 50% our defense spending to ensure that the Canadian Armed Forces, we don't just talk about deterrence, we are actually able actively to be able to make good on that promise and that assurance. When it comes to sanctions, as we talked last week, I hope the government is working very actively with allies in the special group that has been stood up to ensure that we can actually identify and target Russian assets, kleptocratic assets in this country and be able to freeze them or ideally change the legislation that we have and also be able to seize those assets and do as the United States is doing, which is to be able to put those assets to use uh, for to support some of the fight, um, some of the fight in Ukraine. I do think that there's a lot more that this country has done historically. For two and a half years, for instance, we held down the United Kingdom. We supported the United Kingdom in its fight against the Third Reich before the Americans uh, were able to, uh, before the Americans decided to join in World War II. It is often forgotten when our American friends talk about how they led the fight uh, against Hitler and against the Third Reich, that it was, of course, Canadians and Canadian support that helped the United Kingdom sustain that island until the Americans decided to get into the fight and then be able to launch the invasion in Europe. The invasion would have looked very different if the United Kingdom would not have been at its disposal as a territory to be able to launch that invasion. So Canada has a very significant contribution to make to sustain Europe and in particular to sustain Ukraine in this fight. And I'm not sure we have so far done everything that we can do and everything that we should do in this country because we are not conscious the extent to which the fight in Ukraine is directly linked to our own security, prosperity and democracy. We've become complacent and our military is under-equipped. The men and the women in the Canadian forces are among the best in the world. But the equipment that they have to use is certainly not. Our fighter planes are antiques that often cannot fly on combined missions with NATO aircraft because they don't have the communication skills. And they're just previous generation rejects from the or retired from the Australian Air Force in the case of uh, CF-18s. Christian, in the, in the minute and a half we have left, what do you see going forward um, how do you see this developing? You're one of this country's foremost experts on NATO. What do you see happening in the next weeks? The coming week, I think, will be telling. But what we're in for one way or another is at least a months-long fight if the Ukrainian defenders are able to hold out in Kiev in order to push back the Russians in the war of attrition. If the Ukrainian defenders are not able to hold out in Kiev, then we are likely in for years-long 1980s Afghanistan-style counterinsurgency that NATO, the United States, Canada will need to sustain. And so anybody in this country who is under the illusion that this is going to be over quickly may want to think again. And this is why we need to change our defense posture. We need to demonstrate that we stand with our allies and with our partners in Europe, and we need to be able to hunker down for the long haul. And that means certain sacrifices, including economic sacrifices. The sanctions we have will be in place, I think, for a long time, and Russia will become a very isolated country. And we need to do our bit to support our European colleagues and allies in their energy transition. In the meantime, I think one of the things we can do is provide them with liquefied natural gas while they accelerate their energy transition. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. 
Have a great weekend.